Well, our question today is a challenging one for people of faith and for people of no faith. If God is good, why does he allow suffering? Let me start by describing two people's reaction or response to this question, uh, the question of suffering and God. Their names are Stephen Fry and Francois Morenzi. I guess Stephen Fry needs little introduction to most of you. He's a brilliant, uh, quite brilliant uh, comedian, actor, writer, novelist, activist. Uh, Fry was asked in an interview a couple of years ago on Irish television what he would say to God if he met him. And he replied that he would tell God, how dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault. It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? And he added, bone cancer in children? What's that about? Because the God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac. Totally selfish. We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him. What kind of God would do that? Now a clip from that interview, a short clip, put on YouTube, has been watched more than 7 million times. Why? I think Stephen Fry is expressing what a lot of people feel. His anger is earthing many people's deep struggle with the problem of suffering and evil, which we have to take seriously. Now, the second person on the slide there, uh, who I guess most of you have not heard of, is Francois Morenzi. He was from Rwanda, and in 1994 he was studying at Bible College in England when the Rwandan genocide took place. In a period of about 100 days... More than 800,000 Rwandans were killed by members of a different tribe. One of the worst genocides in, in recent history. Rwandans were killed by members of their own nation, but a different tribe. And Francois was from the wrong tribe. And every single member of his extended family was killed. Except one niece who managed to escape. And he was later amazingly able to locate in a refugee camp and help to escape. Now, that is suffering. How did he respond? Francois became a Christian minister. He was the first black African to be ordained as a priest in the Church of Ireland back in 2003. I remember meeting him in the 90s. He was my friend's roommate. Now, reflecting on the genocide, Francois wrote these words, a poem called Children of Rwanda. Known and unknown are the children of Rwanda, victims of war and genocide. Though not with us now, we know you're at peace. We who survived will remember you. Ten years onward, our hearts still troubled by lack of justice for survivors. Help our leaders, bringing peace and hope, also preventing the same tragedies. Will you join me now, remember lives lost? Will you join me now, pleading to all? to learn the lessons that at any cost, genocide must end forever more. You see the contrast. Stephen Fry and um, Francois Morenzi, both intelligent men, both encountered suffering, and there's a strikingly different response. For one, it is the, the, the slam-dunk argument against the goodness or the reality of God. For the other, it is a call to prayer and faith. Francois Morenzi personally 
knew a lot more about suffering than most of us do. I don't feel like I'm an expert in it. He knew more about it than Stephen Fry. Yet he not only held on to his Christian faith, but he then went on to become a pastor. Now, how do we account for such different responses? You could say, well, it's partly down to culture, partly down to individual temperament, but that wouldn't hold because Christians of all ages and kinds of ethnic backgrounds down through the years have responded, just like Francois, to deep suffering. How does it work? It's this, that Christian faith has resources in it that enable people to view suffering in a radically different way and even to embrace it and grow through it. Now, this is a huge topic, and I've only got 20 minutes more. So the only thing I can promise is that this talk won't answer all your questions. But we we want one big question to be a place to start a conversation. So let me share three perspectives from the Christian faith on suffering and the goodness of God. Firstly, logic and the greatness of God. Secondly, love and the suffering of God. And thirdly, hope and the promise of God. Firstly, logic and the greatness of God. And there's that phone number at the bottom, which we hope is Liz's number. Is it? Yes. Okay, I can relax now. Logic and the greatness of God. So for many people, the presence of evil and suffering in the world is is the biggest problem they have with Christianity. For some, it's a philosophical issue. How could God exist and be powerful and allow suffering? And the logic goes like this. There's a three-step logical argument. One, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil to exist. Two, there is much pointless evil in the world. So three, therefore, the traditional good and powerful God cannot exist. Can you spot the flaw in the logic? It's the idea that if evil appears to be pointless to me, then it must be pointless. But that's flawed reasoning. Just because we can't see a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason. It doesn't mean that there cannot be a good reason in the mind of God. Now, we can all think of times in our lives, or maybe times in the lives of people you know, where we went through suffering that at the time seemed pointless. But years later, we realized that we'd grown through it. The suffering gave us character, strength, insight that couldn't have come any other way. So surely, isn't it possible from God's point of view that there are good reasons for all suffering? Timothy Keller, as a pastor and a writer, says, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be angry at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have a God great and transcendent enough to have a good reason for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. Let me just try and illustrate this point with a, with a personal story. Uh, when my daughter was three years old, she suffered from a condition called febrile convulsions. Uh, any parents who've seen this will know how scary it can be. The child literally starts heating up. It's a bit like something goes wrong with the thermostat. And they, they get to a point where they're so hot that they, f- they have a fit, go blue around the lips, and lie there looking for all the purposes like they're dead. We were very alarmed. We took her to hospital. Uh, We thought it might be meningitis. So we went for tests. And the doctors, uh, having examined her, said, we're going to do a test now that can be very upsetting for parents, so we want you to stay outside. 
They were going to insert a long needle into her spine to get some fluid, and I will never forget the sight of that little toddler, three-year-old, wearing just a nappy, surrounded by strangers, looking at us as we walked out of the room and a curtain was pulled across. And from outside, I heard the whimpering. Now, when we were finally allowed back in, there was a pitiful sight, a tiny ball of humanity curled up in the bed, weeping. Now, could you have explained to that three-year-old that what we just did was for her good? To her mind, that episode of suffering was cruel and unnecessary and pointless. Yet to our perspective, it was a necessary step in order to test for meningitis for her protection. Now that is the difference between a three-year-old and her parents who were 30 years older. What about the gap between us and God? Let me put it like this. The distance between the earth and the sun is 92 million miles. If it was reduced to the thickness of a piece of paper, that distance of 92 million miles, then the distance between Earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. That's how far it is to the nearest star. But the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. That's how big the galaxy is. Yet our galaxy is nothing but a speck of dust in the whole universe. Astronomers calculate that there may be 10 trillion galaxies in the universe which is expanding. And the Bible says that God created the whole universe and holds it together with his power. So do you think that such a being might have good reasons for allowing things to happen that we haven't yet understood? Logically, it's reasonable to believe that he could. So I would say the first response of the Bible to the question of suffering is logic and the greatness of God. There's more to this than meets our mind's eye. But logic on its own is not enough. It's not enough for my heart, and I'm sure it's not for yours. Logic on its own is quite cold, and our hearts need a bigger reason to believe in God and trust him. So this is where our second perspective comes in. It's about the love of God and his suffering. I want to read with you one of the earliest accounts of uh, Jesus and his death. This is from Mark's Gospel. It was based on eyewitness testimony, people who actually saw Jesus and knew him and spent time with him, and they wrote down uh, the earliest accounts of his life. This is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. It's about Jesus' death. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi. Lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last the death of Jesus Christ on a cross. Now, a wooden cross was a very vicious way to die. The Roman Empire only used it for the worst criminals. Crucifixion was not only agonizing, but it was publicly degrading, shameful, and it brought uh, a huge shame on the victim and their family. First of all, the victim would be flogged with uh, something like a cat of nine tails, 
to make his back bleed, and then forced to carry a heavy crossbar, could be 75 pounds or more, outside the city walls to the crucifixion area. Once that place was reached, he might be offered a drink of wine mixed with myrrh to act as a mild painkiller. He would then be nailed to the crossbar. Thick nails would be driven through his wrists, most likely because the hands wouldn't be able to support his weight. The crossbar was raised and put on an upright post, and his heels would then be nailed to the post. The whole thing would then be stood up and dropped into a hole in the ground, at which point many of his bones could be dislocated. Now, once crucified, a man could live for a few hours or sometimes a few days, depending on how severe the flogging was and how strong he was. Flogging would weaken him because it caused huge blood loss and could induce shock. By the time he'd carried the crossbar to the crucifixion place, he'd be exhausted. And then on the cross, the victim would have his body weight suspended on his arms. And in this position, it's difficult to completely exhale. He could take a few shallow breaths, but eventually he would have to force to push himself up to take a full breath. And that would lead to pain that would quickly force the victim to lower himself back down. But eventually he'd be no longer able to raise himself up and would suffocate. The shock from the blood loss due to the flogging would hasten the process. In some cases, if they were going on too long, soldiers would take pity on them and break their legs. This would prevent the victim from being able to raise himself and he would suffocate in a few minutes. Now that is horrible. It's a disgusting, tortured way to die. And I've drawn your attention to the details to make this point that Christians believe it was our God on the cross. It was our God. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, fully human and yet fully divine at the same time. So in Jesus Christ, our God suffers. He gets suffering because he himself has suffered. But there is more, actually. The Bible teaches that there was an extra dimension to the suffering of Jesus that nobody else could or has experienced. It comes from the nature of who God is. See, the Christian God is, is tri-personal. There's three persons in him. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches that throughout all eternity, since even before time began, these three persons have lived in a community of love. Jesus, the Son, was not created, but he lived without blemish. through all eternity in a relationship of love and intimacy with God the Father and God the Spirit. But at the cross, Jesus experienced something new. He took the punishment and the exclusion that we deserved on his own great soul. So the Father rejected him. Jesus was shunned, crushed and broken. And he cried out in those words that we just read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was absolutely abandoned. Now we cannot fathom what it would be like to lose infinite love and to feel utterly alone in that way. The Bible writers depict the sufferings of Jesus in his soul as far greater than the sufferings of his body. So extreme was it. On that cross, he went through hell. His heart broke. His breath gave out. And he died. Now, what does all this add up to? The Christian God is God on a cross. He is God suffering. Now, there is no depth of pain, agony, and rejection that he does not understand because he has plumbed the depths himself. Edward Shillito was... Uh, alive during the First World War. He was shattered by the carnage that he saw. And in light of the suffering, he looked for comfort. 
And he wrote this poem. Some of it's a bit old language, but I think you can follow along. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus, of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are, have no fear. Show us your scars, we know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you did stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but you alone. Our God is a sufferer and wounded God. Jesus Christ went to the cross out of love, a love supreme. So, if God is good, why does he allow suffering? We've thought of two perspectives. The first was that logic and the greatness of God give us a perspective. And secondly, love and the suffering of God. Jesus' love took him to a cross. He understands our pain. This is no distant, detached deity up in heaven somewhere, but a suffering Lord. And that is a great comfort to people in their suffering, to see their lives in the shadow of the cross. But there is more. Because actually we need something even more than just knowing that God is with us in our trials, as great as that is. We also need to know, don't we, that our suffering is not pointless. And this brings us to our third and final question, hope and the promise of God. Uh, The Bible talks about hope from the start to the end of the book. Right near the end of the Bible, there's an amazing vision of the future. It's a vision of, of a better tomorrow. And I'll just read a tiny bit of that a little flavor of what that vision of what the world will look like in the future. It says that um, the dwelling of God will be with people and he will live with us. We will be his people and God himself will be with us and be our God. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's the future vision of the Bible. Now one criticism of religion is that it's Pie in the sky, when you die, by and by. Karl Marx was critical of religion because he felt it was the opium for the people, an opiate to dull and numb the masses so that they wouldn't rise up in revolution. And certainly, religion that is used as a tool to justify injustice and oppression is a wicked thing. The Bible would agree it's roundly condemned such false faith from start to finish. But the Christian hope is not that. The Christian hope is not just, you know, suck it up and then you'll go and live in the clouds somewhere. The Christian hope is hope of a bodily resurrection. A future with God in a new world, an embodied existence in a creation in which all sorrow and suffering is gone forever. And in that world, the Bible says, we will experience life as it was meant to be, the world we all want at the end of the, the trilogy, Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee, who's a hobbit, discovers that his dear friend Gandalf is not dead, as he thought, but alive. And he exclaims, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? 
And the answer of Christianity to Sam's question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having once been lost and broken. It will somehow be greater for having once been lost and broken. The most poignant way I can put this as I close is in the words of a woman called Joni Erickson Tada. Joni Erickson Tada was a great sportswoman. She was very uh, sporty and fit. As a teenager, she was a great swimmer. One time she was on holiday with her family and she died. She was diving into, I think it was a lake, and uh, she dived in an area that was too shallow and broke her neck. She was rescued out of the water alive, but has been paralyzed from the neck down ever since. Uh, she's actually incredibly able to paint uh, really beautiful pictures with just a, a brush held in her teeth, and she's managed to write books through dictation. But she spent the rest of her life in a wheelchair. Okay? She wrote these words, and I'll finish with these. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. She looks to this future hope and says, We will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry and how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and for his glory. I hope I can bring my wheelchair to heaven. I know that's not theologically correct. But I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. I will say, thank you, Jesus, and he'll know that I mean it, because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble, because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Joni, in her own words. Logic and the greatness of God. Love and the suffering of God. Hope and the promise of God. The three perspectives on this very big question.